0: Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimas And I'm Daniel Amelgear. And today's topics are going to be featuring our visiting scholar, theologian, Ken Keithley.
1: That's right. And in Everyday Apologetics, Ken Samples will talk with Ken Keithley about how, if Christians use the same Bible, do they still disagree?
0: Yeah, you know what? I think that has capped our Ken quota. So in Science <laughs> Faith Connection, we're going to have Jeff Zwerink talk with Ken about whether Genesis borrowed from ancient texts.
1: First up is Culture Talk. Ariana will be interviewing Ken on the topic, How Do I Deal With Doubts? So let's go ahead and check it out.
2: Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics you can use to share your faith. I'm joined today with theologian, Ken Keithley. We are here to discuss the question, how do I deal with doubts? So Ken, thank you so much for being here today.
3: Ariana, glad to be here.
2: Thank you. I'm so happy that you're here and we get to discuss the question, how do I deal with doubts? So the first question that I wanted to ask, because this is definitely something that Christians grapple with in their mm-hmm. faith and their day-to-day living. So what are some practical ways one can navigate their faith while, de- while being challenged with doubt?
3: Yeah, when you say challenged with doubt, let's make sure that we are identifying it correctly. Because, you know, if we're talking about a believer who uh, who is struggling with doubts, we're not talking about someone who's a skeptic, nor are we talking about someone who's dealing with anxiety. Mm. Uh, you know, that that's actually something uh, that's very real and very different and, mm-hmm. and needs to be addressed in a different way. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about someone who is struggling with doubts, then again, first thing you want to do is... Uh, listen to them a long time and very closely. What it is? What is it that they're struggling with? Is it that they're struggling with? Uh, is the Bible true? Are they struggling with? Um, is uh, is Jesus really the Son of God? Or are they struggling with something like, okay, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad are Christians. Am I a Christian just because mom and dad were Christians? Or am I, you know, I had a very powerful adult conversion experience. What was that? Was that really me encountering God, or did I just have a profound emotional experience? Or it could be that there's other things that they're struggling with, like how can someone who's living like me actually be really a Christian? Because Mm -hmm. I'm falling so far short Mm -hmm. of what a a Christian should look like. So so you, you have to listen and pay attention to what it is exactly that the person is dealing with. Mm-hmm. So once that's identified, and if a person is you know, really, well, I'm talking about me, I'm not talking mm-hmm. about talking to somebody else, then you have to go through that and yeah. kind of do some self, uh, self-examination. So that would be the first thing, mm-hmm. make sure we know what it is about doubt that we're, that we're struggling with.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, from there, uh, what I would say is, is that we look at the certain resources that we have available. If we're talking about intellectual doubts, you know, how do I know that something is true? Uh, if you're, you know, how, how do I know I can have confidence in the Bible or mm-hmm. have comp- Well, uh, there's, th- here's where Reasons to Believe has such excellent resources mm-hmm. on the existence of God or how one can have confidence in the Bible. If, if we're dealing with intellectual um, uh, doubts, if we're dealing with something that is a more of an emotional doubt, here's where uh, a person you know, you, you hear the expressions uh, deconstructing their faith mm-hmm. are deconverting. And we have sometimes where people um, are fearful that that's what I'm doing. Just remember this the opposite of doubt uh, is not faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The, uh, the opposite of faith is sight. Hmm. Uh, a, a life of faith is something that deals with doubt as a normal process. In fact, I would argue that every Christian, as they go on the journey of faith, sooner or later is going to have what Martin Luther called the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. where you find out, do I really believe this?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Am, mm-hmm. I, am I really a follower of Christ? And and that's, that's a, it's a pretty grueling emotional experience. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a travail. What I would say to anyone who is is going through that, and that is to say, don't fear. Don't live in fear. There are great resources available from brothers and sisters who have gone on this journey before, such as Reasons to Believe. And most of all, go to the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. John wrote, he said, these things have I written uh, that you may uh, know that Jesus is the Christ and that you may believe, and by believing uh, you may have life. And so the very purpose of the Gospel of John is to help someone who is struggling, is this true, Mm -hmm. is Jesus the Christ? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I would just finish what I'm saying, what what, uh, uh, in John chapter six, where so many of the disciples quit following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus preached a very tough sermon, And it says a whole lot of them went away. And Jesus said to the 12, Will you go away also? Yeah. And Simon Peter said, "Um, You have, you know, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.
2: Right, right.
3: And so, what I would always say, ultimately, uh, make sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's where the Gospel of John is so important.
2: Right. Thank you for that. Um, in your area of study, in your years of experience in ministry, has there ever been a time where you've doubted your faith in God?
3: Oh, sure, sure. I, th- I think that, um, like I said, not long after my conversion at age 17, it was it was a fairly profound conversion experience. And so within about the first year after that, I, I asked myself, well, well, you know, Am I believing this because I want it to be true? Mm. Because I do want it to be true. Right. Okay, so it is, am I, do I have a really bad case of confirmation bias? Um, Am I, so is it real? Uh, So here's where I found uh, great resources. This is decades ago. And so Josh McDowell had a book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I remember just devouring it and reading it and realizing, no. We have a reasonable faith, and so it—it uh, it is a faith, mm-hmm. but it's faith seeking understanding, and that what we find is—is is that within the Christian faith it does meet profound needs. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with wanting it to be true. Right. It could turn out that the reason I that we, we want it to be true is because it's what we desperately need. Mm. And it meets needs in a, pr- a profound mm-hmm. way that, that n- nothing else can. So, yes, I, I have experienced, and, and I think that, like I said, I don't hardly know of a mature Christian that hasn't, in one way or another, gone through what we're talking about.
2: Mm. And I like that you mention a mature Christian because I feel like To reach a level of maturity in your faith you have to go through so many experiences and like those moments of doubt those moments of healthy questions that you've been Mm -hmm. that you've mentioned um another question for you what do you think is the balance between having questions questioning god being doubtful and strengthening your faith at the same time where is that like where's that middle ground
3: i think that both of them can be very vigorous and healthy as long as someone uh, is doing what 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 the Christian life teaches and that is you keep seeking after God look at the psalms if you notice there is this very healthy worship of God but there's our other psalms where <laughs> those are those are those are letters of complaint mm-hmm.
5: you know,
3: and and it's uh, so true. and despair mm-hmm. and despondency and, and like psalm 13 where are you lord will you right. forsake me forever you know, or you have Psalm 73 where, where the psalmist says, you know, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Every time I do the right thing, it doesn't pay off for me. I've got neighbors, they're as wicked as the day is long, they're doing fine. And he said, when I thought, you know, when I tried to think about this, it was too painful for me. Mm. So you have, I think, I think the Psalms give us permission to be real. The one thing I don't think we have to worry about is that we have to convince God that we believe in Him. I think it's okay to take your doubts to God on your knees and say, God, right now, I'm not sure you're up there mm-hmm. and I'm not sure any of this is true. All I know is um, I, I am willing to have you in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to have you reveal yourself to me. I'm willing, I'm willing to follow you. Uh, and, and that's what I always say whenever someone's struggling. If you knew reasonably, confidently enough that Jesus has risen from the dead mm-hmm. and that he is the Christ, would you follow him? No matter what.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's really, the, the, we are called to follow Christ.
2: Right, so it's like that balance is just having that understanding that we have permission to ask questions. We have permission to be doubtful. And that's just the beauty of having relationship with God is that there's room for all of our feelings, all of our emotions, including doubt. And that's such a beautiful way to describe how to deal with doubt. And I just, I thank you for your answers, your perspective, your insight on that. And I just wanna say thank you for um, being here and giving us your time. And if anybody would like any more information on the topic that was shared today, please feel free to visit reasons.org slash Ken Keithley and you will find all the information you need.
4: I'm joined today by a special guest, Dr. Ken Keithley. He's professor, senior professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, a picturesque spot. I've been there a couple times and enjoyed my visit. Ken, welcome to our program.
3: Thank you, Ken. It's a joy to be with you.
4: We've been talking, Ken, about uh, topics of religious authority, scripture, and tradition, um, You know one of the things that maybe skeptics uh, might raise is you know all of you christians seemingly have the same bible but uh, you don't all up end up in the same place there's a lot of disagreement and i think at times uh, non-christians are puzzled by that or troubled by that and frankly as a christian i'm rather troubled that there's so much disagreement What's at stake there? Why is there so much disagreement if we all have the same Bible?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And ain't it not the truth that we have our disagreements? Uh, we, we really do. Um, I think that sometimes it is good for us to zoom out from the disagreements and take a look at the big picture. And, that, and, and the big picture is this, that for all of our disagreements, our, uh, the things that we agree about are much bigger and much greater and more substantive. Um, think of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and it goes, if you if you look uh, at what the Apostles' Creed says, I just don't hardly know uh, of a Christian that would not affirm those truths. Um, and, and I don't just mean among Protestants, but, uh, but Catholics and, 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 and Orthodox Christians would, would affirm all of these great truths. And so I think it helps us to be reminded uh, just how much we ag- about how much we agree. And so what we agree about is much more su- substantive than what we disagree. Having said that, I do acknowledge that there are disagreements. And and why are there disagreements? Because there is an interpretive process going on. Uh, We have uh, a body of objective truth given to us in Scripture. Uh, We we believe the Bible to be inspired, infallible, given to us uh, through the apostles and the prophets, and that we know it to be the truth. Uh, But reading the Bible and understanding it is an interpretive process. And when we do that, when we put together uh, all of the truths in Scripture, uh, that in itself is an an interpretive process. So you have systems of interpretation. Um, What we can call it, covenant theology, dispensationalism, charismatic theology, uh, Calvinism, Arminianism. There are these various systems. Now, uh, I grew up in the Ozarks of Missouri, and my father uh, owned a small lumber mill. And uh, one of the most interesting things I ever heard my dad say about being in the lumber business is that he said the great challenge for a a sawyer, that was the person who decided how the log was going to be cut. He said, we are, we are um, getting square boards out of round logs. Hmm. Uh, and he said, uh, it, it, it's difficult to know what is the best way to cut that log. You know, you have the tree that's been cut into logs and it's around. Okay, you know, should it be two befores? Should it be a railroad tie? What is the maximal way that does the most justice to what's provided there? Not only is the, round lo- uh, the log round, but it also has its unique features. It has knots here and there, it may have a certain curvature. So it was a uh, it was a bit of a challenge to know what is the most effective way to uh, cut this log in the mo- that you have the least amount of waste. So it is with interpreting Scripture. In fact, that's why I, I use that uh, the the cutting of the lumber uh, uh, of the, the log into lumber as uh, as an example because it talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm-hmm. You have the body of truth. What is the best way to understand and describe the truths being presented in it? And that's what the various systems do. And therefore, there are times uh, that these systems will come to a particular disagreement about the best way to understand. Well, we all agree that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Um, and we, we, can ag- we can agree that this is the way we are saved. What exactly did the atonement accomplish? And you have different theories. Yeah. I hold very strongly to what would be called the penal substitutionary theory. There are others who would say, no, it's more of a Christus Victor. And then there may be others that would have a more of a governmental theory. And um, when you look at it, We're all affirming the same truth. Jesus Christ died for our sins, and we are saved by his work on the cross. But exactly how we put that together may be something that we have a a pretty vigorous uh, debate. So that's what's going on, Uh, you know, that, that what you have is an objective body of truth from Genesis to Revelation. And there is great agreement about the broad outline of how to understand that biblical story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Hmm. But we can have um, respectful disagreements about the details, about the best way to interpret the entire story and some of the details. That's what's going on
4: so you've got this uh you've got great unity in the sense you talked about the apostles creed we could look at the nicene creed Uh, orthodox catholics and protestants affirm Mm -hmm. that great body of uh, theological content Um, and yet there are also those important differences uh, there i think uh, i think your point is very important for both non-christians and christians to realize that uh, having disagreements does, does not eliminate this deep common ground that we have. Um, what would be your suggestion, Ken, for somebody who is just starting out with Scripture and trying to make their way through it?
3: Well, I would always, if somebody is just saying, okay, I think I'd like to read the Bible, what do I do? I would always start with the four Gospels. Uh, you know, I think, I think that um, the Gospel of John uh, or the Gospel of Mark is a great place to start. I would, if, if we're talking about someone who really has no experience with Christianity, not only would I start with that, but then I would go uh, to a community of faith because you need to have uh, someone uh, who would then teach scripture to you. And I think going to a worship service on Sunday of, of an evangelical church in which they're going to preach the gospel and you want to go to a church it, I would encourage you to go to a church in which they are teaching the Bible in a rather systematic manner. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you do that, um, you know, I would, I would say to that person, I would pray for you that, that through hearing uh, the the songs of worship, the preaching of the word and reading of scripture, that that person would come to know Jesus in a saving way. And from there, I think that uh, they, they would, we would have a development then of how to understand biblical truth. If I'm understanding your question right, if you're talking about somebody who's starting from zero, yes, that would be the way I would say it. Because in the end, the starting point for every person uh, to, to understand spiritual truth is to have that encounter with Jesus Christ. Who is he? Uh, how, does, how does the Bible present him? And once I understand who he is, what am I supposed to do with those claims? Um, That is the beginning point.
5: Hello, Jebs Zwierink. Welcome to the Science Faith Connection, segment of our show where we explore important scientific, philosophical ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ken Keithley, and we're going to be asking the question of whether Genesis has borrowed from ancient religious texts. Ken, it's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Always looking forward to our conversation. Uh, you know, I have been involved in a couple of discussions where people have just made the charge that Genesis is just borrowing from the ancient Christian texts and it's just one of those standard creation myths that's out there. Uh, and as I've talked about it, uh, there's this often this charge that comes up that Moses isn't the author. And so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to start with that last one. Now, I know you think Moses is the author, or at least had some contribution. How would you describe Moses worked there. Yeah,
3: and here I would uh, be quick to admit that I'm I'm borrowing or, or talking about borrowing sources. I'm borrowing from uh, Old Testament scholars, uh, conservative evangelical scholars like. Um, uh, John Salehammer, or Jack Collins, and others, and they would say uh, that Moses gave us the law. It is the law of Moses Mm -hmm. and that the Pentateuch contains the law of Moses. The Pentateuch, that means five books, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, contained within that is the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'd say, yes, Moses gave us the law. Moses obviously uh, had some sources as he worked. Mm -hmm. When one reads the account of Noah and the flood, it almost reads like uh, a captain's log, where it'd say, (laughs) on this such and such month, this happened, on such and such a day, this happened. And so uh, I would not be surprised if Moses had sources from which he worked. That, right. that, okay. we, we don't have a problem with that. That doesn't challenge uh, the, an evangelical understanding of revelation or inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would say that Moses had sources and after Moses died, there are those who uh, edited and added to what we have because there would be places where it'll say, and it is so even to this day. Okay. You know, so it's right. letting us know a later editor is working with it. In fact, it has the account of Moses' death. <laughs> you know, and so, it, so it's, it's a reasonable thing that someone uh, uh, added that. And so what we have is the finished product of the five books of Moses, is how we'd say it. And probably, possibly, uh, it was uh, completed uh, during the time of Ezra and the priests. hold to a canonical understanding of inspiration, uh, revelation, and preservation. So what I would say is what we have in those five books uh, are those books are what the Holy Spirit wanted us to have Mm -hmm. and that the Holy Spirit superintended that process such that when it is given to us it is the very work of God. Now what parts did Moses borrow, what parts were added later to Moses, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, um, uh, Old Testament scholars spend a lifetime looking at at source criticism. But there's nothing uh, that I have seen that would ever take away from the notion that Moses is the one who gave us the law.
5: So it, so if Moses gives us a law that's operating in the context of Egypt, ex, the exodus, that, that's the time frame we're talking about for the, the dominant place. A lot of that's being put together, if you will. Yes. Um, how do you respond to the charge that Genesis is just borrowing from ancient text? I mean, you got light and dark and you've got floods and you've got chaos and order. It does sound kind of like some of those myths. Why do you think it's different? Well, just think of someone accusing
3: Fuzz Rana in the many books that he has written about uh, evolution, uh, biochemistry, uh, the design of the cell. Think of someone saying, well, uh, because he refers to Darwin and Darwinism and natural selection and speciation and genetics, uh, he's just borrowing Mm -hmm. from the evolutionists. And you'd say, no, Uh, what he's doing is he's responding. Uh, he's, 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 he's engaging with and involving himself in that conversation. So, <clears throat> one of the things, in fact, anybody that ever actually says that, I wonder if they've actually read something like the Enuma Elish or the Gilgamesh epic or the creation uh, texts uh, in the coffin texts that one sees at the various uh, burial sites in Egypt. Um, yes, the nomenclature is similar. Yes, he uses a terminology they'll get and they'll understand. I mean, how would Fuzz talk to someone about evolution without talking about natural selection? Mm -hmm. How would he talk about it without talking about genetics? I mean, he's going to have to talk their language to be able to challenge their conclusions. So yes, Moses talks their language, but when you actually compare the Egyptian creation myths are the Babylonian creation myths or the Canaanite creation myths. With the Book of Genesis, it's stunning how different
5: Genesis is than all of those uh, others. And so, 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 it sounds like there's some of this that is just, you know, for lack of a better word, contextualization. It's like this is the conversation that's going on. I'm going to join the conversation and bring these ideas into it. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Well, he's going to speak to his audience. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, he, yeah as, as you just said,
3: contextualization. What does that mean? Well, that means paying attention to your context. Mm-hmm. And so Moses is very much someone who is writing to people who have been immersed in these creation myths. And what he's going to do is he's going to meet them where they're at, he's going to uh, talk to them in language they understand, but he's, gonna, he's going to uh, really do a number on their world view. He's mm-hmm. going gonna to flip the narrative. And it's not going to be that the world is the result of a chaotic war. Uh, chaos is not what brought us into existence, the, mm-hmm. way, the way the Babylonian myths have. Um, you don't have Marduk, who is a fourth generation god, uh, who wins the day just simply by slaughtering everybody else and making everybody else kowtow to him. What we have in Genesis 1 is something uh, sovereign and serene, mm-hmm. God speaks the word and it is. Those things that are considered chaotic and terrifying in the ancient world like the ocean uh, and, the, and the tannin, the, the great beast, and all of the things that they were afraid of, God just speaks and they obey. The ancient world was terrified of the stars. That's an interesting thing mm-hmm. for somebody who's an astronomer or an astrophysicist. But they, astrology ruled. They believed that the stars faded them, hmm. that it dictated their, what their lives, uh, uh, the outcome of their lives. Mm-hmm. So that's why they were so concerned about astrology. What do you have in Genesis 1? He made the stars also, mm-hmm. and you know, and- Almost and, like an afterthought. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and, and God made those too.
4: Yeah.
3: I, it, and, and it is a backhanded way of putting them in their place. They haven't, they're not to be feared. Um, he doesn't even name the sun or the moon. He just, you know, because what, the sun is worshiped by the Egyptians, the Babylonians worship the moon. What do you have uh, in, in in Genesis? God made them both. What you have in Genesis is a an amazingly radical de-deification of the natural world. The reason why Jeff Zwink and other scientists are able to do science and look upon the world as a natural phenomenon and not some type of uh, entity that's alive and should be perhaps worshipped and obeyed. Um, You're not committing any act of blasphemy or you're not being impious whenever you examine the natural world in fact you even think of it in categories of a natural world mm-hmm. that would have been alien to Moses' original audience because they believed everything was alive the river was alive the sky is alive the 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 breeze that isn't the wind blowing that is a deity mm-hmm. and so uh, Moses is 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 teaching them no there's there's there is only one God and he's not in nature, this world we have, this created order that we have. He transcends it, Uh, and now he permeates, uh, his presence permeates, but he's not, and the, the, the created world is not divine. And so, therefore, since it's not divine, and we are placed over it in his image, then we are not to fear it, we're not to worship it, we're not to obey it, uh, we, we are to treat this world like what it is, uh, so, a, a beautiful garden for which we have been given a stewardship. This is a magnificent, different way, totally unlike what the pagans were thinking all around them. So the idea that Moses borrowed uh, is, is
5: just strange, and it's, and it's totally incorrect. Well, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your comments. You know, if you found this useful, I do think it's just remarkable how much different Genesis is from these ancient religious texts and how, uh, you know, I love the way Ken said it, that Moses did such an excellent job of contextualization that we think more like Moses than his original audience did. I'd encourage you to go out to YouTube, look for Genesis Among the Pagans. You get a much expanded edition of what Ken's talking about here that really will help equip you to respond to this charge that Genesis is just borrowing from the ancient Near Eastern text and to see that Genesis really is unique among the ancient Near Eastern texts, and gives us a great tool to go out and share the gospel
1: we hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith compassion and
0: confidence and you know what i really enjoyed this episode i loved ariana jumping in She did so great i know and you know what she made such a good point of like creating space right. for for doubts and that right. being actually a sign of maturity what ken did and kind of giving this um kind of differentiate differentiation between the different types of doubt and then identifying doubt as a whole theme mm-hmm. as opposed to anxiety which is something very right. different so i think that i hope it will be very affirming for people if they're coming here with with doubts yeah know? definitely and i
1: really like the way that he created space where he's like it's okay to have yeah. these doubts because me growing up in the church i always felt like if i wasn't a hundred percent on board believed everything i heard and read mm-hmm. i was kind of like I'm like, oh, I don't want to seem like I'm against yeah. the Bible or against the church or anything. But the way he explained it where it's it's like a healthy amount of doubting mm-hmm. that you're having. Yeah. And so I just really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, I know it was all definitely a good conversation. So if you want to stay in touch with us, be sure to subscribe to this show and also to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. We'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: And if you would like the audio version of the show, you can find us on most major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast.
0: See you next week. See ya.